Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello everyone and welcome to The History of England, episode 273, Pope II, The Return. Did I mention, before I start, that I am going to be presenting at a conference? Did I tell you that? It is in New York, which apparently is good enough to be named twice, and it's on Saturday the 28th of June. There are loads of great people there, including legendary Mike and awesome Kevin. That's Duncan and Stroud, Rome and English, by the way. If you are excited by this idea, book away sweet lips that never told a lie. Book away. You can find details on thehistoryofengland.co.uk. It's called the Intelligent Speech Conference. And while the name sucks, it'll be a high old time with a bit of luck. Right. Now that the English and Spanish have met at court, the Spanish being busily proud, disdainful and uncomfortable, and the English doing what they do best, being white, pink and quarrelsome, the logical thing to do in this podcast will be to get on with the main themes of Mary's reign, those really important serious things like religion, the Counter-Reformation, the Tudor dynasty in its latest format. But rather than that, I thought it would be nice to get a bit more personal about Mary and her court setup. After all, she's going to get a bit of stick through the centuries, so we might as well get to know her a little bit more. One of the fascinating things about having a woman on the throne was the change in the dynamic of the privy chamber. So we've got used to visualising Henry VIII doing his ablutions, shall we say, with his groom of the stool standing by, while said groom applied paper to royal bum and whispered in his ear at the same time about his mate who needed a helping hand in some way. We've become used to the idea of political influence exercised informally through the privy chamber, as well as formally through the royal council, 
Privy Chamber versus Privy Council, as it were, yin and yang, yang and yin. Well, now that's all changed, because with a woman on the throne, there was no question of a bloke having anything more than a nodding acquaintance with the royal backside, and to some degree, that informal influence was therefore curtailed. Because while indeed women might exercise influence politically, they could not wield it directly, unless you happen to be queen, of course. So, the structure around court shifts a little bit. Within the inner privy chamber, Mary surrounded herself by women, while in the public chambers, her advisers and protectors were all men. And then in general, Mary surrounded herself with women of impeccable character, falling neatly into the worthy but dull category. Among them, and probably first among equals, was Susan Clarencius, whom she appointed as her mistress of the robes, which is, by the way, the same position as Sarah Church, who would occupy for Queen Anne much later. Though, if you've seen that film, The Favourite, I'd put the idea of any more similarities out of your mind. Concentrate on those two words, worthy, dull. Possibly adding a third, Catholic, though not exclusively so. Susan Clarencius had been a companion of Mary's through both thick and thin, right through to the wafer thin and up to the reassuringly chunky. From some time before 1536, and clearly she had a strong bond with her younger mistress. Having stayed with her all through the difficult days, it seems only meet and right that she should therefore be rewarded when they burst through the crust of despair into the light of power, affluence and influence. Though it is worth noting that it was never too bad, and that all along the journey through the crust of despair, Clarencius acquired grants and goodies so that she was a proper, fully paid-up, card-carrying member of the Essex gentry by the time it was all over. In fact, Susan Clarencius is a good example of the sort of influence that the women around Mary could wield. So, if you were a courtier and you could catch Susan's ear, you might get to know how the Queen was feeling, when was a good time to talk to her, or you might get her to support your cause, whatever said cause was. So, for example, Jean Dubois, the imperial ambassador's secretary, recognised her importance when he described her as the chief lady in the princess's household. When Simon Renard was trying to get Mary to sign up to Team Philip rather than Team Edward Courtney when choosing a marriage partner, one of the people to whose door he beat was Clarencius's, and he came away very well pleased, reporting happily that Mrs Clarencius supports our cause to the utmost. This was clearly quite important. It mattered to him. And in fact, Clarencius was at Mary's side when Renard was ushered into the Queen's presence to hear the final answer that yes, she would sign up for Team Philip. However, it appears that the women around Mary were not for the most part that interested in wielding political influence. So the influence of people like Cecily Barnes, Frideswide Strelly, and golly that's a name and a half, you try saying that on a Saturday night, and Jane Dormer doesn't seem to have become anything of a political issue. There are some rather negative comments that survive about Mary's household ladies, but you have to suspect that many of them are just tittle-tattle, which we should treat with that Jonathan Swift quote in mind. It is the folly of too many to mistake the echo of a London coffee house for the voice of the kingdom, or of course its modern equivalent, otherwise known as Twitter. So the kind of comments we get about them are similar to this one by one disdainful Spanish courtier. The Queen is well served with many ladies, most of whom are so far from beautiful as to be downright ugly. 
though I know not why this should be so, for outside the palace I have seen plenty of beautiful women with lovely faces. Which seemed to be all that mattered to the lad. Blokes are so shallow. But other reports and other events cast a rather different light on relationships of a much more positive interaction. Jane Dormer was described by one poet as a darling of such lively hue that whoso feeds his eyes on her may soon her beauty view. And as it happens, Jane Dormer would end up marrying King Philip's favourite, the Count of Ferrier, and she would leave Spain after the death of her queen and take Susan Clarencius with her. So you suspect that under all the noise of discord, there was much more interaction going on between Spanish and English. There is something of a theme in Mary's life, of long service and loyalty from the people closest to her, which speaks very well of her. So, for example, outside the privy chamber, access to the Queen was governed by the men of Mary's old Framlingham household. You know, the likes of Robert Rochester, Henry Jermingham, we heard so much about during her coup. Mary turns out to be a bit of a stickler for gifts and presents, never forgetting anyone, from the great and the good to the small and positively pokey. Included among those long-lived relationships should be included Jane Fool, who was, you may be amazed to hear, Jane's Fool, from somewhere around 1537 onwards. Ironically, Jane first appears in the accounts of Mary's arch-nemesis and personal fiend, Anne Boleyn. Historians think there may be a picture of Jane in a family portrait of Henry VIII, where he's sitting in state with his lad and his two lasses, and in the background, through an arch, is a woman often identified as Jane Fool. I popped a pic on the website. The question is whether she was what was called a very fool at the time, that is, someone with learning difficulties, or a merry fool, that is, a bit of a kidder who did the leaping and dancing and farting thing to amuse the mighty. We don't know, though it seems that she shaved her head, which many other merry fools did as well. There's even been a suggestion that she was married to Will Summers, who was Henry VIII's fool, and he was as quick as a whippet, and apparently one of only two men able to make Mary laugh, according to Tracy Borman, so there's a thing. However, the evidence is thinner than a very thin thing, so I wouldn't put your shirt on it. As you can tell from this, Mary also brought Will Summers into her household when her dad dies, and he was potentially between jobs. This all rather plays to the image of Mary as a rather serious, uncharismatic sort of person, but loyal and conscientious, maybe to the point of being rather pedestrian. And honestly, no one's really disputing that image, but it has been somewhat modified. It's been more accepted that Mary understood the importance of display, even if it wasn't her natural game. And as her Guildhall speech had shown, she could appeal to the people if the devil drove. But she didn't have that casual, easy, natural facility for it that her father and indeed her sister did. The Venetian ambassador claimed that she was subject to a very deep melancholy, that she suffered from regular illnesses and headaches. She ate sparingly to the point where some have suggested a form of anorexia at times. But she did have that Tudor love of gambling. She loved cards and board games. So there we have at last a shared passion between me and Mary, a love of board games. Hurrah! While we're painting a picture of the private Mary, she was a dab hand with a needle and thread, as her mother had also been, and she would spend hours embroidering, which I guess is a reasonably therapeutic occupation after a few hours of, you know, governing the people. She was fond of pets, keeping a spaniel and parrots. She was a lover of masks and plays. So, you know, 
All work and no play and all of that did not conspire to make Mary quite as dull as her reputation might have her be. However, there's equally little doubt that Mary's greatest passion was religion, that she was deeply, deeply devout, going to Mass at least four times a day and starting every day with the same prayer, which prayer goes like this. O Lord, my Maker and Redeemer, I thank thy goodness most humbly that thou hast preserved me all this night. These, then, are the pursuits of the Queen of England, who now had a king. And now we should maybe get on with those themes I talked about earlier. And one of those themes was, of course, what kind of king Philip was going to be. Would he abide by the terms of the treaty that Gardner had forced him into, which made him a kind of baby-maker in England, while he could expend any political energy he had lying around purely on his own empire? Which empire was, after all, substantial enough to keep most people amused? We know that Philip had been appalled by this treaty and had himself absolved with an oath with the help of a compliant religious. But we also know that he had given in and played ball to various demands and calls on his dignity, such as taking the secondary left-hand side during the coronation to the fury of his Spanish courtiers. So maybe he was going to play ball. However, it seems to be that he did not roll over at all by any means and that he had his methods of acquiring influence and he did a bit of worming. He was unwilling to risk any more obvious conflict at court, and English passions and fears were already inflamed enough, but he was prepared to worm his way into the affairs of state where he could. And in this, he had his wife's support to some degree at least. I have been rather at pains to avoid the old image of an entirely hormonal Mary enthralled to her passions for her husband. But it seems acceptably clear that Mary was reasonably bowled over by her other half, and very keen to make him happy without losing her sense of reason. Two days after the wedding, therefore, Mary stipulated to the Privy Council that a note of all such matters of estate as should pass from hence should be made into Latin and Spanish from henceforth. That seems significant. She's making an effort to ensure that Philip knows what is afoot. Mary seems to have been keen for Philip to be involved in other ways as well, so she told her Lord Privy Seal, the Earl of Bedford, to have a bit of a meeting with her new husband, with or without biscuits, to bring him up to date, and then keep him informed as things went on. First, to tell the king the whole state of the realm. Second, to obey his commandment in all things. So this begins to look like a breach of the principle so firmly established that Philip would have no hand in the political events of the realm at all. I can feel my hackles doing whatever it is that hackles do, in tune with the testosterone-endowed nobility and people of England. I can feel a Lord Melchett coming on. And if you're looking for the story that Philip was really running things secretly, then as Baloo said to Bagheera, there's more Baggy, much more. So when new coins were struck in 1554, this time it was the king's image that appeared on the right-hand side, and that caused a few eyebrows, I can tell you. Philip set up his own mini-council, whose job it was to process English political events and keep him informed. He carried out discussions discreetly with Mary's councillors to keep himself abreast of affairs, and he even handed out some equally discreet annuities drawn on his own purse. William Paget got the most, 375 quid a year. And all of this meant that two parties did begin to emerge in the real Privy Council. One group, led very much by Gardner and Mary's old trusted Framlingham councillors, but on the other side, 
William Paget and the more military-minded of councillors like the Earl of Pembroke, for example. Pembroke, while we are at it, and just in case his name is not living in infamy forever, was the loser who backed out of his promise to support Jane Grey, just saying. So, does this add up to a hill of political beans? To the idea that Philip really drove the bus of state while his adoring wife stood aside and waved him through? No, it does not. There is little doubt that Philip did wield influence in the events that followed, but it's equally clear that while Mary was smitten and wanted peace and harmony with Hub, just like a queen consort and a king, Philip's influence was for the most part dependent on him influencing Mary. He quite clearly found this frustrating. He was not even given an English estate, which is rather remarkable for a consort of any sex, and even more annoyingly from his point of view, he was not given a coronation either. So he would get progressively crosser and crosser and crosser about all of this. But although Philip found the situation deeply frustrating, he behaved very much like an English person watching a bit of cue barging. He gave a bit of eye-rolling and a bit of tutting, but he did not unduly push himself forward to change the situation. And it's also clear that Mary was quite capable of choosing her own path, and in some key situations she would do just that. Despite Philip's political frustration and his all-too-obvious lack of passion for his wife, he was also keen to keep Mary happy, and for those first few months there's little doubt that he did, and that for a while at least, Mary had as much opportunity to feel at peace and at one with the world as she had ever had before, or indeed since. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Philip also shared Mary's passion to bring the country back to Rome and to Catholicism in all its aspects. So now... We must leave the bower of love and domestic harmony and stride confidently back into the cold light of religious conflict. And this might be a moment for a quick recap. Where had we got to by 1554? Was everyone now back on the Catholic side of the boat? Well, let me take you back to Finsbury Fields in March 1554. Finsbury Fields were then on the northern edge of London and a popular recreational area. Early in the 16th century, it had seen riots and the mayor of London had tried to enclose it, and the hedges had been torn down and the ditches filled in by the good Londoners with all their native cockney wit. On the Arga map of the 16th century, which is something of a triumph, by the way, there it is, complete with windmills and right next door to the Lord Mayor's hunting kennels. I have put a link to an interactive version of the Arga map on the website. It's amazing. You can search for whatever bit of Tudor London you would like to see, and the winter evenings just fly by. Anyway, Finsbury Field were home to a lot of popular pastimes, such as archery, for example, which, as we know, everyone was still required to practice, just in case a bunch of French notables showed a renewed desire to commit collective suicide. In March 1554, while Wyatt's rebellion raged outside the walls of London and everybody quaked, a bunch of 13-year-old schoolboys did what 13-year-old schoolboys do, and they made a game out of the daft goings-on of the grown-ups. There they were, on a Sunday, milling about in Finsbury Fields, playing at whatever they do, 
and maybe the word had gone out before, but by the time things kicked off, there were about 300 schoolboys from the city schools there. So, with that many boys around, the logical thing to do would be, of course, to turn to violence, which they duly did. They split themselves up into teams. One side called themselves the Army of the King and Mr Wyatt, and I guess that would have been in memory of King Edward. And the other side called themselves the Prince of Spain and the Queen. This brought back memories for me because I remember as a nipper going to see my brother in a reenactment of the Battle of Bosworth. It was all rather disappointing and counterfactual since I think Henry Tudor was totaled within about four nanoseconds. But that was fine also because it meant we could go and have tea and buns. But there was a similar outcome here. Mary's side were roundly defeated. All that sounds fun enough, but as 13-year-old boys do, they took it way too far and they decided that the best conclusion would be to hang the Prince of Spain. So, they selected a small child and did that very thing, with almost disastrous results. Don't try this at home, gentle listeners. Well, by this time the authorities were on the scene, and they did not take kindly to these jolly japes, not kindly at all. As far as Mary was concerned, there was nothing to laugh at at all, and she ordered some of the boys whipped, and others even taken and slung into the Guildhall jail, with the resulting sound of little squeals as small boys hit the back of the prison wall. There was general outrage, the sucking of lemons, pursing of lips, tutting and shaking of heads, and the general sound of humour failing all round. Both Spanish and French ambassadors wrote home about how horrid were the English, not for the first time, and most definitively, not for the last. Apart from being a bit of a fun story, the Battle of Finsbury Field does have a significance. It rather illustrates the divisions of the grown-ups, for one, and the victory of Wyatt probably also demonstrates the lack of basic sympathy among the young for Mary and for Catholicism. These younger people would have known nothing of the Catholic rite, even from the days of Henry VIII, and certainly the Pope had come to be a figure of widespread ridicule and detestation. Mary, Bishops Bonner and Gardiner, and Cardinal Paul might hopefully think that returning England to the Catholic faith would be something of a doddle, just gently showing the way, opening the door to allow the faithful to stream through into the garden, as it were. And actually, for very many, that was absolutely the case, as it happens. Many had already been pushing at that door. But equally for many others, it was not just contentious or alien, but unknown. Anyway, I think we have heard that a bunch of Protestant bishops had been ousted and replaced by good Catholic ones, and the likes of bishops Hooper, Ridley, Latimer, Cranmer were in the processes that would lead to the fire, the status quo had been returned to the time of Henry VIII. The more zealous of them, like Edmund Bonner of London, had needed no more encouragement, but had started making sure his parishioners were all in line. Altars and masses were restored all over England to the joy of many. Possibly one of the more brutal aspects at this time was the outlawing once more of clerical marriage, with the wives of priests declared concubines. Parliament, though, had cut up surprisingly rough mainly due to their worries about the land they had snapped up during the Reformation and their fear that the church would like it back, please, now. And so, a large stick had been placed between the legs of the running Catholic religious and the counter-Reformation was in danger of ending up sprawling all over the floor because there was no resolution to that problem of resumption of church lands and the heresy laws remained outlawed as they had been under Edward VI. The answer to all these problems was cooling his heels impatiently on the other side of the channel, Reginald Poole. And part of the reason for that was the desire for Philip to get all the credit for the return of England to the fold by getting into England before Poole arrived. And now that this had happened, 
The way was set fair for Paul to finally set sail for England and the battle for the soul of the English could really get underway, along with a big, red, hot knife ready to remove the Veruca that was the Protestant heresy from the foot of state. But there was still a problem. Reginald Poole was a zealot and Philip was concerned that rather than get things sorted, he would just inflame the situation. No pun intended, of course. Let us very briefly remind ourselves of Reginald Poole, though he has been mentioned a bit, so hopefully he's not a complete stranger to you. Born to Richard and Margaret Poole in 1500, the first point to make is that Poole was of the highest rank of nobility. Through Margaret, he had a claim to the English throne even, through the Yorkist Clarence. Groomed as a young man by Henry VIII for great things, he'd been sent to Italy for his education and preferment, but there he had refused to toe the Henrician line, and after some agonising, wrote his most famous book in defence of the unity of the church, wherein he could be accused of being a little sharp towards Henry. Well, it might be more accurate to say that he roasted the man. Henry did not take kindly to such treatment, even verbally, and Henry was able to go after Poole's family when they were implicated in the Exeter conspiracy. Reginald's mother was brutally and messily executed in 1539, and Reginald himself attainted in absentia. There was, as you might say, bad blood. Now, Reginald Poole was without doubt a rather brilliant and talented man with a gift for writing, and he had risen to great heights in the Catholic Church. He'd become a papal legate in 1536, and was sent to whip up a storm in support of the Pilgrimage of Grace. And in 1538, he was part of a legation to establish the Council of the Church that would become the Council of the Trent and the engine of the Catholic Reformation. In 1541, he was made legate of the papal patrimony, and his writings also continued to the popular and influential. There's one in 1543, The Benefit of Christ's Death, which sold 40,000 copies. I mention this because it conceived of the church as a small group of the elect, justified through salvation by faith alone, which is entirely in line with Paul's rather aristocratic, distant and haughty view of the world. But it is also, of course, dangerously Protestant-sounding. And indeed, Paul was gutted that the concept of justification by faith was rejected by the Council of Trent. And despite his talents and success in the church, he had his enemies, who suspected him of being dangerously heretical. He'd been a very poor and unenthusiastic member of the Inquisition, for example, withdrawing with indecent haste, apparently upset by their methods. Leading the dissing of Paul was one Gian Pietro Carafa, a one-time ambassador to England and papal nuncio in Spain. He did not like Spain or the Spanish, as it happens, and would do everything he could to thwart them. This was a feature of Carafa, about whom we will stay for a while. Here is a man driven by his prejudices and opinions. He was deeply involved in the traditional local Roman politics, opposing the powerful Colonna family, the kind of politics that did nothing to help the reputation of the papacy in the minds of non-Italians. He was an enthusiastic Italian patriot, and even as a reformer, Carafa might have had some success, but the virulence of his methods caused criticism. Now, to Carafa's horror, in 1549, on the death of Pope Pius III, Poole was the front-runner in the papal election. In the first round of voting, Poole landed 24 of the 28 votes he needed, and for a moment it looks as though he'd be elected by acclamation. But in the background, Carafa was ferreting away doing his work. He charged Poole with being a poor manager, with having an Ill illegitimate daughter, and most damaging of all, 
of being a heretic, which is unhelpful if you're trying to be a pope. Many cardinals objected to him as a foreigner, which is a lovely line, of course, the papacy supposedly being an international institution, but the xenophobia was not restricted to the Italians. The French had the same attitude. In the end, Carafa was triumphant and Paul missed the election by a smidge. And the new pope was one Giovanni Maria Cacci del Monte, elected as Julius III. Now, as it happens, Julius III was a fan of Paul and he protected him against his enemies. So while not an ideal result for Paul, it could have been worse. In August 1553, Paul and Julius were buzzing with excitement about the situation in England and the chance to bring England back to Rome. Things were looking up and Paul had a mission. Julius gave Paul very wide powers so that he was almost like a remote operating pope, as it were, and the letters were flying between Paul and Gardiner and Paul and Mary, at which point problems started to appear. Some of those problems were about politics. As we've heard, Charles wanted Philip to get the glory of England's return. But another problem was that Paul could be accused of being a little inflexible, shall we say, or firm, rather zealous. It is interesting, isn't it, how saying somebody is zealous is so much milder than saying someone was a zealot. Zealous is probably better here. Paul hated and detested the marriage of Mary and Philip, actually, not an attitude designed to make him popular. Even more universally odious than the cause of religion, in his words, so it's perhaps understandable that Charles would not allow him to travel into England until he was ready. Paul was equally uncompromising on church governance. As far as he was concerned, England must return immediately to papal supremacy, and he was furious when Gardiner and Mary felt they could not push Parliament too hard. So Paul fired off furious letters to Gardiner and Mary and told Mary in no uncertain terms that in making Parliament the authority for changing religion, he was making a big mistake. After all, what was secular when compared to the glory of religious authority? Monarchs were essentially to be judged by their diligence in carrying out God's will. That was the only relevant yardstick. There are ample examples of the extravagance of Paul's view of the supremacy of the church over earthly authority and his enthusiasm for putting people right in their views. Mary herself received a right ear-bashing when she presumed to describe her father's memory as blessed. I am painting a rather negative picture here, and in some ways, Paul was a poor choice to lead the full reconciliation of the church, given the strength of his views, and his harassing and bullying of Cranmer, which would come later but which we've already heard about, is an unattractive part of his character. But actually, in other ways, he was very well designed for the role. For Paul, this was not just about a return to obedience, though it was most certainly that. This was a chance to bring the glories of the Catholic Reformation to the English, to refresh, to revive the liturgies and practice of worship, to educate the clergy better so that people were given the best possible guidance. Paul meant to reinvigorate, to re-enthuse, to refresh and reform Catholicism in England. He was not just a blunt stick intending to browbeat, and that's something I promise we'll keep in view in the future for balance. However, he was uncompromising in his attitude to church lands. Those that possessed them were in a state of sin, as far as he was concerned, and nothing good could come from Mary's reign until they were all handed back, at which point we could then begin to talk about forgiveness. This again was deeply unhelpful. Philip could see far better in England that the idea of returning church lands was just plain daft. 
that the most influential men in the realm and in Parliament specifically had paid a perfectly good price for them and firmly believed the king that sold them had had perfectly good title to the land. In this, Philip then intervened, corresponding with the Pope, and he brokered a deal with Mary and the Pope since Mary was also inclined in this to be practical rather than doctrinaire. And they all managed to arrive at a deal. Paul was given wider powers, actually, which meant that he was allowed to forgive the possession of church lands himself, which effectively meant that Paul was ordered to forgive them, in return for a promise from Mary that she would return as much of church land as was possible. With this, then, we finally have liftoff and Paul set off for England. On the 20th of November 1554, he landed at Dover and over the next two days he travelled to London. As he came, he gathered councillors and noblemen to his side and at Gravesend he took to a grand barge and with Londoners lining the banks of the Thames and calling out enthusiastically, the cardinal and papal legate rowed up the Thames towards Parliament. Papal authority had returned to England and if they could have done, Thin Liz's favourite track would have been piped all over town to which we will return in a couple of weeks' time. Meanwhile, do not forget to book your place at Intelligent Speech Conference, and I hope I will see some of you there. Thank you, everyone, for listening, for taking part on the website, Facebook, and so on. Good luck, everyone, and have a great fortnight. Serves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.